The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. come out right? Hello, everyone. How are you doing? I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of Literature podcast. My goodness, how are we holding up? We are still in quarantine as of this taping, and no end in sight. I hope you and your loved ones are hanging in there safe and healthy, and if you're on the front lines out there fighting for people suffering from this god-awful pandemic, my thoughts are with you. You are the best. You are just the best. So I guess what we can offer today is a little distraction, a little high-minded diversion from the general routine. Maybe you're on that exercise bike that had been gathering cobwebs in the basement. Maybe you're outside, sitting on a lawn chair, staring at the emptiness. Maybe you're driving around pointlessly, looking at the spring that never was. Maybe you're one of those healthcare workers on your way home from work. Maybe you need some kind of break. That's what we are. Some kind of break. (laughs) Mike Palindrome is here for a special top 10 draft. The greatest lines in all of Shakespeare. 10 great lines. Not so easy. Not so easy to pick. We could have taken 100, maybe more. We will have Mike in a minute. You can see how we do. But first, let's hear a few emails. Subject, greetings from your friend in Salt Lake City. Dear Jack, some time ago I was lying awake, rolling restlessly in my bed when I was inspired to write a letter to you. Mentally, I drafted my message from the warm comfort of my blankets and pillow. It was a love letter to your podcast and all of the work you put into each episode. It was sublime in its construction and beautifully written, at least by the standards of my writing, which is not much to go by. I felt impelled to leap out of bed to immediately begin writing to you, but I didn't. I completed the letter in my head, never leaving the warmth of my covers. After many weeks, as I now write to you, I admit that I that I cannot recall a single sentence or idea. Too bad. Life at the time of my false start was stressful, and I felt ground down from work and other responsibilities. This exhaustion made me feel unable to express the heartfelt emotions I was experiencing, both my torment and my joy. In retrospect, however, I realized that I can only hold myself responsible for my failures. Regardless, this made me wonder what brilliance and creativity is absent from the public mind because the world with its prejudicial occupants and its taxing demands, has tempered or destroyed the spirits of potential artists and other creative people throughout time and place. This thought and the agony it induced in me was only heightened as I listened to your recent episode on Phyllis Wheatley. I think those are the people that we need to hear from the most, the suffering and the oppressed. Hearing you read the terrific emails you receive, as well as the transcendent pleasure of listening to your podcast, however, has filled me with hope. To the talented people who have written to you, I plead to them that they continue their work. We need to listen and hear more from them. Before this letter goes on too long, please allow me to thank you. I am nowhere near as creative or eloquent as many of your other listeners who have written to you, so permit me to echo the remarks and praises produced by my betters. Your podcast has reignited my love for reading literature and aspirations for becoming a writer, opening my eyes to new authors and novels I had never heard of and therefore would not have read if it were not for you. Thank you for your inspirational endeavors. Given your outpouring of love for literature, all for free no less, I am indebted to do my part, however humble that may be, and I have pledged to the History of Literature Patreon. Thank you again, Jack. With a patient eye to the future, In a grin on my face, I look forward to many more enlightening episodes from you. Best, Matt, from Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, well, wow. Matt, thank you for such a beautiful email, and I'm glad you have a renewed sense of hope. I hope you keep reading and writing. I agree with you that my emailers are awesome. I must have the greatest audience ever assembled for any purpose 
in the history of human civilization. <laughs> Sounds grand. I truly believe that. I know what you're thinking. Well, what about the audiences who assembled to watch Greek tragedy? And to that I say, okay, good point. And you might say, well, what about those Elizabethans gathering at the Globe watching Shakespeare? And I say, wow, another good point. <laughs> those, those are good audiences. But then I think, wait a second, hang on. Are they really so great? That's like saying, oh, look, here's a good eater. Just look at how he tucks into that beluga caviar and that wagyu beef. That's what you're getting with Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides and Shakespeare. You're feasting on the greatest meals ever prepared. Well, this podcast ain't that, people. Not even close. It's like a, it's like a ho-ho. <laughs> Those audiences in ancient Greece and Elizabethan England, they were getting a seven-course meal prepared by the greatest chefs in the world. My audience is content with a ho-ho. Isn't that better? Isn't that a better audience? So yes, I stand corrected, and then I reject the correction. I stand firm in my original statement that the History of Literature podcast is the greatest audience ever. They're working as hard as I am <laughs> to make this work. And I love the emails as I loved this email from Matt in Salt Lake City, and I appreciate the Patreon support, which Matt and many others have done by heading over to patreon.com slash literature. We've had a few people complain about the ads, which is unfortunate, and to that I say, I hear you. I wish I was free of ads too, although I'm appreciative of the those who have chosen to advertise with us. But Patreon is the path forward, as far as that goes. I also understand that people are struggling these days, and I hear you, and I get it, so if now's not the right time, I totally understand that too. I am truly grateful for the support, but I'm also grateful for listeners who have to postpone their support for a while, or who have to contribute in non-monetary ways, or who just like listening and spending a little time with us, and aren't inclined to even lift the little finger to click the five stars button. I like all of you, my friends, and I wish you all well. One more email. This one actually was a comment on Facebook on episode 202, Chekhov, from Carol. Quote, I usually hate podcasts. <laughs> it's in all caps, hate. I've tried some five, oh, sorry, I've tried some five times just to be sure on how annoying they really are to be. Now I wonder if I was just an ignorant listening to the wrong ones because this here was a treasure. It was my first and for sure not the last. Love the selection, the humor, the insights. Bravo. End quote. You see, people, how could I not enjoy these listeners? Here's Carol, amazing Carol, willing to give a podcast five episodes, or five, maybe the same episode five times, just so she can confirm the level of annoyingness, just so she can be certain that she hates it. She's a good hater kind of like Bendrix in my favorite novel of all time, probably, The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. And yet, she's found a home with us. Welcome, Carol. We are very glad to have you on board. Speaking of bored, you'll never be bored with our next guest, on or otherwise. It's Mike Palindrome, the president himself, back for another Top Ten list. By popular demand, Top Ten Greatest Lines in Shakespeare. And they're from ten different plays. That's one of the stipulations of this contest. So here's a good project for you. Have you seen all 10 of these? Maybe you'll have to watch them by video for now until the quarantine lifts. But it's not a bad thing to make that a goal, to try to see all 10, or to read the plays. All 10 that we mentioned today, which is second best to seeing them perform live, but also still very enjoyable and can sometimes be even more engaging because you can savor the language and really dive in. You can linger. And you know, one thing that will become clear to you, I think, as you're reading away, is how these lines jump out at you. Even among the wealthy neighborhoods of Shakespeare's work, these are the mansions that stand apart. These ten, these are the most glamorous, the most striking, the houses on the hill, the ones with the ingenious architecture and perfect symmetry and beautiful landscaping, and just the right amount of ornamentation 
in detail. These are the mansions that make you wish for a time that you were living a different life. The life inside there. You ever felt that when you drive around? And you suddenly see a house and you think, my God, why don't I live there? Why isn't that me? Why isn't that my life? Why isn't that the place I call home? These lines are like that. What am I doing out here? Thinking the way I think? Talking the way I talk? Why is my mind filled with all the garbage, the static, the unworthy, the pointless, the low-level idle hum, the little crackle of insignificance? Why isn't it majestic and gorgeous and soaring like Shakespeare? Well, maybe we can't do that, or maybe we can. Maybe we can for a little while. Let's try. Mike Palindrome in Shakespeare's Ten Greatest Lines after this. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor, and their delicious, ready to eat meals. These things are amazing, chef crafted, always fresh never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's here for a draft of The Greatest Lines in Shakespeare. We'll see if we can come up with the top 10 lines penned by the immortal bard himself. And we'll do that with the help of our immortal guest, Mike Palindrome. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, I'm not sure when this is going to post, so I don't want to be too topical. But as we record this, we're on the eve of a massive coronavirus shutdown. Is everything okay with you and your family in Manhattan? So far, so good. Um, we, uh, we've been watching some movies together and reading lots of books. And I'm about to embark on reading War and Peace, a public space journal is doing a War and Peace readathon together. Oh, yeah. right. And you're participating? I think anyone can. It's just uh, um, 12 pages a day. That's the that's the oh, base. But you can months. do it from within the quarantine or the Yeah, and then yeah. you post on uh, Instagram and Twitter and there's a moderator. Uh, a little it. bit of a sh- little bit of showing off, a little bit of uh, 
community <laughs> dialogue. Okay, well, good luck with that. So, we uh, are drafting Shakespeare lines today. We made one rule for this draft, and I found that it completely colored the way I chose my lines. So, let me tell the mm-hmm. rule. The rule is that once a line is taken from a play, no other mm-hmm. lines from that play can be taken. The play is knocked right. out, so to speak. So, it changed me because I, I was kind of playing defense, too. If I thought I could steal a line or two from your choices, I tend to put, tended to put that play higher. Yeah, like I was I also, playing Go or something. I could box you out. <laughs> I, I thought the same, but I also was reminded of the fact that I get to pick first. So. You get to pick first, and I think the first one is going to be... Uh, you know, the, the funny thing about this, sometimes when we do a top 10, I feel like we're... By the by the ninth and tenth, I'm really scraping the bottom of the barrel. But with this one, I feel like I had ten top lines and then a thousand honorable mentions, and I could mm-hmm. have picked any of those. But I think the number one is going to be a pretty obvious one, and you get to pick first. So, mm-hmm. what did you pick? Well, I'm going to leave the obvious number one to you. Oh, and okay. I I went with maybe an obvious number two. Uh, which is now is the winter of our discontent. Oh, from so you're taking Richard the Third. Yeah. Richard the Third. I had that on my list as well. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the sun of York. Which is which is also probably one of the first, the only uh, Shakespeare lines we'll be picking. That's the first line of a play. Mm. Which ah. is which is very yeah. Uh, I find incredibly just you know satisfying just to open up a book and read that line it's dramatic when it it happens on the stage too when they uh character comes out delivers that line it's very powerful that's interesting i have one i'm gonna have to check i think i might have one that is the first line of a play but i will uh (laughs) confirm that while we're talking here and i i also just love the play i just saw it last year the dublin theater company from Ireland comes to New York every summer. Probably that they've been doing it for about five years and they put on Richard the third and it was amazing. Hmm. And so. you also with that one, get the uh, line, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, <laughs> which is, right. it's not Shakespeare's most poetic line, but there's something really compelling about that. When you think about it, just the, the way that it shows the fall of a leader that they're willing to trade their whole kingdom for the one thing they can't have the escape of a horse, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the play is just filled with lots of wordplay. Like there, there's some, um, they, they refer to the queen's subjects as the queen's abjects. Mm. I, I always love that. <laughs> well, well, one of the things I want to talk about is just how the, the charm of, uh, lines that are now incredibly dated, of course, you know, being over 600 years old, it, you know, like there's for many Vanks, they say Gramercy, mm. which is from the Middle English in French, Grand Merci, you know, big Vanks. So they, they say that all the time, Gramercy, fellows, <laughs> <laughs> which I find incredibly like stiff, but also charming. Yeah. Oh, Gramercy is you like it because it's Grand Mercy. Well, that's that's the origin of it. Yeah, yeah that's like uh, my favorite Zunes, which is from uh, God's <laughs> Wounds. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but... I always thought it was Zounds, but it's I guess it's better as Zunes for God's Wounds. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I did stick to the rules that we pick a line, but within the the plays, I I just flagged a bunch of things like yeah. the repetition. Like I couldn't help. Uh, flagging this in Richard the Third, Queen Margaret goes. I had an Edward till a Richard killed him. I had a husband till a Richard killed him. Thou hadst an Edward till a Richard killed him. That thou hadst a Richard till a Richard killed him. <laughs> I mean, there's stuff like that throughout. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It's a really. It. I think it's it's a great example of how. You know, the the cliche is that it's really hard to read him in self-quarantine. You really have to hear it being uh, being read on a stage, or you can just read it aloud yourself. Mm, right. Richard III, you also get, with that play, Off With His Head. Oh, which, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which became 
a cliche. I mean, so many times with Shakespeare, something that seems uh, just normal and average to us now, uh, right. you know, it just entered the bloodstream of literature and became a, a very common phrase. And uh, it seems almost like it's been around forever, but it was Shakespeare that gave it to us in Richard III. Okay, great pick. I think I had that as number six on my list. So I, <laughs> I'm i going to go with number one, the big kahuna, to be or not to be, which is, of course, from Hamlet. It's so simple and so elemental, and yet it might be the greatest line in the history of literature. Uh, so I, I don't know what could top it, really. It's so famous. It's been famous for hundreds of years, and it's known all over the world. I think it, for one of these podcasts, I did a like a mix of all the uh, to be or not to be's in all the different languages. It's got this raw power, and I think it's actually famous because the soliloquy itself kind of backs it up. When you read the to be or not to be soliloquy, it's just mm-hmm. filled with famous lines that come one after the other, and I think it's partly because it's so close to to be or not to be, I suppose, but also because they're so good in and of themselves. So it's to be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, that's another great line, or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep no more. And later it's got to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance, to dream, aye, there's the rub. All these are just... Um, yeah. you know, you, you can look through the soliloquy, the to be or not to be soliloquy, and just pick out all of these phrases, uh, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil. All of these have become titles or, uh, you know, phrases that people still say. Yeah. Um, the rock and that mortal coil. Yeah. Right. It's, uh. Yeah, I mean, I think in uh, Perchance to Dream, I mean, there's so many titles of works of art, you know, books, songs, I mean, things yeah. that are just inspirational. And yep. But, you know, my thing is I, I have a little bit of to be or not to be fatigue. Mm. Yeah, kind of <laughs> like, it's kind of like choosing Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, which I love playing <laughs> on the guitar. I just, I, I do think it's it's incredibly moving yeah. When you know, when you're playing it, but to hear it is just you know, I just associate it with Times Square now. Yeah. There's, there's there's a guitarist outside my office building in Times Square who plays um Stairway to Heaven like at six o'clock every day. And and it it uh it's kinda like the days when it used to be on the radio all the time when you hear oh, it so often yeah. it takes away some of its power. But but the first time, not to get too, you know, sentimental, but the first time I ever heard Stairway to Heaven I think that was, I was just dumbstruck. (laughs) You can place it? How old were you? um, I was probably about nine. I feel like I heard the Eurythmics and I thought they were amazing. (laughs) 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 And then I was like, who is this Robert Plant? But I I mean, the first time I saw, so I, I went to Shakespeare in the Park in Central Park when I was, uh, in high school and I saw Hamlet and Kevin Klein played Hamlet. Mm. And I think that was the first time I heard to be or not to be because Hamlet is not one of those plays you read in junior high school. In junior high school, I read Midsummer's Night Dream and Othello. Um, but Hamlet, I think we right. read in high school and I went to, but I went to see it in Shakespeare in the Park and Kevin Klein, when he put the, um, did the to be, to be or not to be soliloquy, I think I was just, that was the first time that I really felt like I understood a soliloquy. Mm. You know, other soliloquies, I would just kind of wonder, like, well, isn't is this like realistic? Is this, you know, why is he, why are he, is she, he or she talking this way at length? But yeah. this seemed to be so necessary to his decision. <laughs> yeah, it's. uh Right. Kevin Klein is great. I just heard an interview with Barry Sonnenfeld, the director, who Uh had directed Kevin Klein in Wild Wild West uh, with Will Smith. And uh, it was like a popcorn movie with Will Smith and Kevin Klein. And apparently Kevin Uh Klein really didn't want to be there. He thought it was beneath him. He was doing it for a paycheck. And Kenneth Branagh was also in the movie. And, (laughs) And Barry Sonnenfeld, the director, was saying it was so 
uh, distracting for the set because both of them believe that they're the greatest Shakespearean actor in the world. And so <laughs> they would just launch into a soliloquy or lines, and then the other one would try to top him. Um, and so the two of them would have these, it sounds like dueling banjos or something that they would be, <laughs> that they would be ignoring whatever they were supposed to do on set and instead just be quoting Shakespeare at one another and continuing to try to top each other. It sounds kind of like a someone should make a movie out of that. <laughs> so just to finish up Hamlet, the, the great thing about the, this line and the soliloquy, there's a kind of suicide, I think, that seems sort of young and unsophisticated, like Romeo and Juliet where mm -hmm. the kids really don't know what they're doing yet. They don't know what life is all about. But this, to be or not to be, that Hamlet is faced with, it's it gives us a picture of life and death all mixed together and that human condition where we know that we're going to die and yet we don't know what's going to happen after we die. And it kind of paralyzes us sometimes. I mean, if we knew it was heaven, people might be excited to leave and and uh, and suicide might not be that, something that we're that afraid of but the fact that it might be nothingness or it might be hell or it might just be something we've never even imagined it puts us in this state of inaction which is exactly what hamlet is wrestling with in life as well what to do what what do you do when you can't do anything what do you do when you don't know what to do and it's just kind of a beautiful encapsulation of what it means to be human in this uh, stripped-down form of to be or not to be. The other great thing about choosing a line from Hamlet is I've got just like 10 lines or so, even in addition to the lines in that great soliloquy, mm -hmm. uh, frailty, thy name is woman, to thine own self be true, uh, the lady doth protest too much, methinks, uh, get mm -hmm. thee to a nunnery, yeah, that's uh, my favorite. Get thee to a nunnery. Yeah. There are more things in <laughs> heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Neither oh, a borrower, okay. uh, sorry, neither a borrower nor a lender be. Uh, brevity is the soul of wit. And the play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. Just great lines. Shakespeare was really, uh, <laughs> yeah. he, he was really, he was really cooking with gas when he was writing Hamlet. I always think the brevity one line reminds me of Dorothy Parker's take, which is brevity is the soul of lingerie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that there are many more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. To me, that seems so fresh. I actually, yeah. that was on my list as like number five. I, I wanted to use that, but I knew you that Hamlet would go earlier Yeah, yeah. You know, in the draft. So I, yeah, I just kind of conceded it. <laughs> mm. Yep. Oh, if you had taken there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy as your number one, I would have been furious. <laughs> that would have felt like you were playing too much defense. Yeah, yeah. No, I can't do that. And my my and my number two is 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 real meat and potatoes. It's uh Henry the Fourth Part One, Uneasy Lies the Head That mm. Wears Crown. Right. Which which I, you know, some people misquote that. I think people say something like heavy is the head that wears the crown. And oh. there's some Bible stuff with like King David about wearing a crown. But I, I, I love the, the phrasing of that. And it, I, I think it's just also probably the Shakespeare that I really fell in love with as a young adult. The, the whole, people call it a trilogy, Henry the fourth part one part two and henry the fifth but i think of it as a quartet with richard the second first and so yeah i mean the you know henry the fourth part one and two there's so many great lines because you have falstaff who is arguably the, the shakespeare's greatest character yeah and the way he riffs on philosophy and humor and love and his crude sense of humor is his intellectual sense of humor I mean, it really is like probably, you know, if I had to just pick one Shakespeare play to take to a desert island, like this would this would be it. Wow! I love the the way the the tones change, the moods change. Like Falstaff goes, three there lives not three good men unhanged in England, and one mm -hmm. of them is fat, 
and grows old. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he says later, Hal, if I tell thee a lie, spit in my face, call me a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I mean, if people haven't read it, I mean, you know this, Jack, there's, you know, the story of Prince Hal, yeah. he becomes King Henry. And Henry V. Yeah, and he how he sort of turns his back on Falstaff. Yeah. Who's his mentor and like kind of like the perfect uncle. Right. You know. And it, yeah, and it's it's a turn from being fun loving, but also just kind of human. Yeah. Just enjoying life and and being patient with other people and, and then becoming the 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 treatment of Falstaff is is kind of hard to watch. Yeah, I mean Prince Prince Hal says, I'll be no longer guilty of this sin, this sanguine coward, this bed presser, this horseback breaker, this huge hill of flesh. <laughs> and Falstaff goes, the blood, you starveling, you eel skin, you dried neat's tongue, you bull's pizzle, you stock flesh. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, Harold Bloom, what did he say about Falstaff? Either he said he was like the, the the first human character or the the greatest character in literature or Harold Bloom was a huge Falstaff yeah. fan. And he started to resemble him later yeah, in life. Right. I think maybe that was why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I was surprised to learn that Mary Wives of Windsor is related to the this quartet. Oh I, yeah. Although, I didn't really I, know that history. I I thought yeah. wasn't that where he brought back Falstaff just by popular demand that it was, was kind that of, it? yeah, it was like the, the public loved Falstaff so much. He did it as yeah. sort of a, a throwaway, you know, to include him in that play. <laughs> okay. Well, for my number, that's a great pick. So for my number two, I'm going to take, uh, Romeo and Juliet and as the play. And I think the line I'll take is Romeo, Romeo, Wherefore, wherefore, I messed it up. Romeo, <laughs> Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Uh, which I think every school child knows, and then they immediately learn that wherefore art thou Romeo is not where are you Romeo, but why are you Romeo, as in why do you belong to this other family and someone that I'm forbidden to see. But it's it's just such a memorable line, such a a perfect piece of song and Romeo and Juliet really has a lot of lines like that. There's, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the East and Juliet is the sun and yeah, yeah. good night. Good night. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. Uh, what's in a name that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And then this is one, uh, there's a couple that aren't as famous, but I think are really good. Mm -hmm. uh, the friar, when he's talking about young love, says, These violent delights have violent ends, and in their triumph die like fire and powder, which as they kiss, consume. Which is a really, uh, really vivid, and I really, I really like the way that that kind of characterizes the, the danger and the explosiveness of young love. And then this, this line is also pretty good, uh, pretty beautiful. Love is a smoke made with the fume of size. <laughs> so Romeo and Juliet, yeah. you know, it's a little, um, sometimes it seems a little over the top, a little sappy, I guess, or a little, uh, you could, you could be cynical about it, roll your eyes about it, about these, uh, these young lovers and, and the, the, the dual double suicide at the end, but it's got beautiful writing in it and it's you feel like Shakespeare was really engaged with it and took it very seriously and kind of went all out to put his his most sentimental but also most uh most poetic self on display when he made the the lines in Romeo and Juliet you know it has incredibly memorable lines I mean yeah it's uh kind of become the blueprint for like young love and doomed love and um, I, I, I love that speech that, you know, with the, the Juliet balcony, I mean, there, there are mm -hmm. terms like architectural terms named after the, the play. I mean, and I think I mentioned this when I did the, uh, the episode on Romeo and Juliet, but the first time they meet and mm -hmm. they deliver their lines to one another, 
and it's the the they each give six lines to each other and then the final two they share and it's the perfect summit and it's like the the two of them these perfect lovers you know having this perfect love they use the perfect form the perfect poetic form which is a, a love sonnet and they compose it together as if it's just flowing out of them but it's actually Shakespeare making them say a, a perfect sonnet which I don't know that people in the audience would have really captured he was writing for a, an audience and not scholars and and readers who would sit down and count the lines and see that it had been a sonnet maybe his audience kind of intuited it because they were familiar with sonnets or sort of felt it but you do feel like it was just shakespeare thinking this is what two lovers should do when they meet they should speak in a perfect sonnet and i can do this and i will do this and <laughs> that's how my romeo and juliet are going to speak with one another it's going to be as if they're they're brought in by the angels of poetry. Well, for my third pick, I feel like you're you're picking the heavyweights and I'm picking the, the sly, <laughs> nimble yeah. fighters. Um, I, I picked uh, Twelfth Night, If Music Be the Food of Love, Play On. <sighs> Just because I, I, yeah. I wanted to have a happy... I wanted to have a happy line. I mean, there's so many great lines in Twelfth Night. I think it's, you know, of his festive comedies, probably my favorite. Yeah. You know, there are lines like, and there's some serious lines too. Like there, there are lines in there like, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Yeah. I had that as my number nine, and I had If Music yeah. Be the Food of Love Play On as the... Yeah, honorable mention for that. I I love if music be the food of love play on. It's sort oh, of the rhythm of it. The like, rhythm of it. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, yeah. it's like it's it's like uh, it kind of overflows itself somehow. It like it there should be punctuation in there and there isn't, and it's it then it it encapsulates the meaning of the phrase. There's such great uh, back and forth. I, I feel like the dialogue is, is is even faster than normal, quicker than normal than with Shakespeare. I mean, Sir Toby is ready to listen, and he tells uh, Maria, "Possess us, possess us. Tell us something of him." Mm. You know that you know that's the way they're entranced, entranced and captivated. Like possess us, and and there are lines like you know, "Still you keep on the windy side of the law." I mean, they, you know, there's so, such great phrasings throughout. And I think it's you, you, his sense of humor is almost, I mean, if I can say, you know, underappreciated. Because I think Shakespeare, <laughs> Shakespeare, he's, he's touted as this intellectual. When in fact, um, you know, maybe this generation needs to be reminded that he was bawdy. And um, <laughs> there's a lot of sex and cross-dressing and... Um, duping the other, you know, duping people. and um, no. the, So I think, you know, if, if you read Twelfth Night and as you like it and Much Ado, you, you come away with a very different Shakespeare from like the Henry IV and Henry V. Now, you may be forgetting, you were so caught up in your... In, in your in the flush of your excitement that you had named uh, Don Quixote as your overrated book that did not need to be read in our overrated episode. Uh -huh. You may have forgotten. I think my number one was Shakespeare's comedies, where I had said, <laughs> you know, they're not as funny as they would have been in Shakespeare's time, and you can do just fine with the tragedies and the histories, and you can go see the comedies mm -hmm. and get something out of it. But to sit down and read one of the comedies, go lightly, maybe read Twelfth Night, but you don't have to feel guilty if you don't read all of Shakespeare's comedies. <laughs> so, uh, so maybe the, I'll maybe, take some maybe blame. the yeah, maybe the criticism should be skewed in your in your direction <laughs> rather than mine. I think I got one email. I, I remember one nasty comment mm -hmm. uh, about the uh, Shakespeare's comedies. I think maybe the listeners were also in the flush of their anger about the uh, Don Quixote because I think I've gotten a hundred yeah. emails about that. And I, I will say that um, Mark <laughs> Rylance, uh, if people know the Shakespearean actor in the Globe Theater yeah. Company in in London, they put on a production of Twelfth Night a few years ago that I, I was able to see hmm. uh, in New York because they, they come to New York um, and put on 
performances, but you 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 you, you have to get one of these crazy seats where you're on the stage, <laughs> mm. and you're you're it's almost like you're an extra. Um, <laughs> and he was incredible, and you know, and then we saw Twelfth Night again at the Edith Wharton House up in the Berkshires. Oh right, and it wasn't as good, but it was still I think uh, the whole. The cross dressing is just perfectly done. I think that's probably like the the apex of Shakespeare's cross dressing phase. Mm. Right. Okay. So we're halfway through. So let's take a quick break and come back with the rest of our draft of Shakespeare's greatest lines. Okay. So I think we're up to mine number three, and I'm kind of torn here. I, I don't really want to follow the list that I had. Your your picks have thrown me, even though you haven't taken any that were in my top five, but they somehow somehow I'm a little off base here. I want to take something <laughs> further down on my list. So I'm going to jump to uh number four. The four on my list, which is Macbeth. <laughs> oh man. And, I can't believe you took that. That uh, was my that was my fourth. That was gonna be your next. So th- yeah. what I took was out out brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale mm-hmm. told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And I think the mm-hmm. the last part is really what makes it so great. A tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. To just, to be at the point where you view life to be, you know, to say life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. That's a little bit, that's almost a cliche, you know, to sort of say uh, uh, life is brief and and it's, um, you know, it all goes too quickly and that kind of sentiment. But then to say it is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing is <laughs> such a bleak uh, but, but still kind of vivid and fresh idea. Uh, and of course gave rise to Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was going to choose my hands are of your color, but I shame to wear a heart so white. Mm, of course, yep. the, the, the inspiration for Marius is... I should have let you. I should have let you take and, it. That was on my list, too. And is this a dagger which I see before me? And yeah. double, double toil and trouble and out damned spot. Uh, all I, those I, are good I lines. love uh, fair is foul and foul is fair. Mm. I mean, the simplicity, I think that, you know, a lot of people say like, well, Shakespeare does a lot of things with opposites. And while that's true, I think it's the way he phrases it. It's yeah. it's almost, and the, the argument that people say that you can't really read him in translation. I mean, you know, the, the lines like the sleeping on the dead are but as pictures. Tis the eye of childhood that fears a painted devil. I mean, it's uh, you know you you yes you can tra- you you can translate it but it's just different it's not Shakespeare it's... yeah uh, to be or not to be is an opposite and um, I think I have some others on my list down here that we haven't gotten to yet and another line from Macbeth that I've always loved was multitudinous seas in Carnadine which <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah yeah. Just uh, one of those I remember in high school, we had to sort of unpack, you know, you have to look every word up in the dictionary to figure out what it is. And then you realize like, oh, wow, you know, he, uh, yeah, he, he was delivering a mouthful, but it's, it's unforgettable. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that's, you strike on, strike on a point, which is often overlooked, which is he's, he can be, you have to unpack some of his stuff, but other things are very clear, but extremely cleverly he says um shake off this downy sleep death's counterfeit mm-hmm. i mean right. it's just you know it's original and it's, yeah. it's strange but it's immediately understandable yeah yeah and it's just tossed off you know it's yeah. really like it would be that might be the the key line in another play no, yeah, everything, right. everything might build to that. That might be the one line you remember from it. Right. And, you know, or maybe in an author's entire body of work, you might remember that line as like, oh, wow, you know, like picnic <laughs> lightning, like, wow, look at that. And here's Shakespeare. He just, he just drizzles them all over the page. Okay. So 
we're up to your number four. All right. So I was going to pick Macbeth fourth. I should have gone with Macbeth fourth because I, I <laughs> could have picked Twelfth Night fourth. Um, uh, so I'll just take my fifth, which is Othello. And uh, the line uh-huh. is, right before Othello kills Des- Desdemona, he says, I kissed thee ere I killed thee. No way but this, killing myself to die upon a kiss. Mm. <laughs> which wow. I just think is, I mean, it's weird and dated, but, you know, it rhymes. It's almost like a pop song. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I just think it. <laughs> It just functions on so many levels for me. I find it very satisfying the way he he, he does like the apostrophe D, kissed and killed. <laughs> so, right. I and I, I I think this has this is kind of like Hamlet. There's a lot of like agonizing with yourself, like what what mm-hmm. is the right thing to do, mm-hmm. and so of course it's like a classic teenage, you know, high school book. Yeah. Um, Right, and th- there's so many shifts in tone and with the use of formal language and clever phrasings like you know we must obey the time. Mm. Yeah, jealousy is the green-eyed monster is in here, and wear my heart upon my sleeve is another uh, invention yeah. here. It's a great one. Uh, I like Iago's line: "I am not what I am." Oh, yeah. And But I actually had as the number one line that I had from Othello. I had Othello 8 on my list. And the number one line uh-huh. I had was, put out the light and then put out the light. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think I like because of Cheers. Um, <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah, that, that famous episode. Yeah, where the yeah. actor was uh, trying to kill Diane and, and yeah. got her to act out a scene in the play. And then he was actually trying to kill her. <laughs> yeah, that's... That that was great, <laughs> and and um, I forget if Norm or Cliff, one of them, is cheering yeah. enthusiastically, like beautiful. Oh no, yeah. that was Coach. Yeah. Coach, I think, was like that was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, no, Coach, she was she, he was actually trying to kill her. So. Okay, so it's up to me now. It's uh, my number four. Yeah. Okay, I will take Julius Caesar. I think the line I'll take is friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. What a great line. It's the kind of, you know, there was a, there was a period in America where every high school kid was reading Julius Caesar. And I kind of miss that. I kind of wish that was still the tradition because it's such a Mm -hmm. great play about civics and, and democracy and empire. And, um, you know, it's, it's also got beware the Ides of March Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war, uh, which kind of reminded me of uh, mm-hmm. of yours from Twelfth Night. If music be the food of love, play on. Kind of reminded me of that. It's sort of the line seems to run a little too long. It runs past its syntax, but that's suitable for what it's talking about. Uh, the fault, dear Brutus, lies not within the stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. It's a nice line. Uh, but for my own part, it was Greek to me. It's a, a good cliche being invented there right before our eyes. And cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. <laughs> it's another line I like. So uh, for some reason, you know, Julius Caesar, the, the, the lines, all the lines that I chose are sort of more stately than they are beautiful, which is another trick of Shakespeare that the, the rhetoric and the whole feel of it kind of matches the themes of the play. You know, these lines wouldn't really fit in Romeo and Juliet and the lines in Romeo and Juliet wouldn't really fit in Julius Caesar. His tone is matching the play. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think that's why all these lines really, really stand out is because to me, they evoke the play that you just read. Mm hmm. It's not in a vacuum. I mean, when I when I hear to be or not to be, I, I hear the echo of the rest of the soliloquy. Yeah, and I think it's you know, that's the power of these lines, because you can take lines. That's a danger of picking favorite lines, because, you know, you, you want to pick the favorite paragraph or the favorite page. And it's but with Shakespeare, it's so evocative, each line. 
Yeah. And we're going to leave a few on our list. We're going to have to go through honorable mentions here too. But what was your number five? Well, I I try to keep to my own little principle of only picking plays I've read. Uh-huh. But um, I'm going to um, break that and use and quote The Merchant of Venice, which I've never uh, read. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And, and do all that glisters is not gold. <laughs> right. Which um, we've sort of changed to all that glitters is not gold. Yeah. But yeah, it was originally glisters. I, I've never read Merchant of Venice, but I did read uh, one of the best essays on Merchant of Venice by Stephen Greenblatt, who's, mm. uh, mm-hmm. who's probably the foremost Shakespeare, living Shakespeare scholar about his um he's jewish and about the anti-semitism he encountered at yale when he was an undergrad in 1961 mm. and he does an exposition a brilliant exposition of merchant of venice and how uh shakespeare captured so much of the detail about the jews in venice but did not bring up the fact that they were required to live and stay in this ghetto at night. They had to always, wherever they worked in Venice, they had to return to the ghetto at night. And they could only leave w- when they got a permit or if they were a Jewish doctor tending to a Christian patient. Hmm. And Greenblatt makes this argument that the reason Shakespeare did that was Shakespeare was dreaming of a better Venice without this kind of ghetto. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it, 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 if people haven't read it, it's, it's in the New Yorker. It's, it's an incredibly moving piece. Yeah. Uh, that sounds good. I thought Merchant of Venice, I had that as number 12 on my list, but uh-huh. the line that I was going to take would, was, uh, if you prick us, do we not bleed? If you mm-hmm. tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? Yeah. Oh, that's good. I mean, yeah. I, it's you know, and it has the the pound of flesh line, right? There, there. I mean, Shylock is 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 up there with with Shakespeare's greatest characters he's created. Yeah. Okay, so, so I am going to round things out. Mm-hmm. I will take. I'll go off the board a little bit here, and I'm <laughs> going to take a line from Sonnet 18. So we give a little nod to the sonnets, uh-huh. which is, "Shall I compare thee to a summer's day?" Uh, thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. But <laughs> shall I compare thee to a summer's day is really about as good as it gets for a love poem. There's yeah. very, uh, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Maybe that might be the only one that that really uh, can compare to that one. Wait, is that is that the same sonnet as my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun? No, that's a different one. Yeah, oh, that's, okay. that's another good choice. Yeah, I always like that that one. Okay, so what uh, what did you leave out? Did you have any on your list that we didn't get to? I mean, I was torn, you know, leaving out King Lear. Yeah, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Yeah, and it's a, uh, it's nothing, a lot of stuff. Nothing will come of nothing is also in Lear. Yeah, and and then Midsummer's Night Dream the the final soliloquy at the end mm. uh, is beautiful, you know, and uh, classic lines like, Lord, what what fools these mortals be. Mm. Yeah. And, well, since I've crossed off comedies, I don't tend to get to those too often. <laughs> <laughs> the Tempest has some good lines like, we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep. No, I've never read the I've never read The Tempest and I've never read Julius Caesar. I really made preparing for this uh, podcast. um, I just pulled out Julius Caesar because I I've owned it forever, but I'm going to read that and Merchant of Venice. And yeah, I was feeling a little remiss not having read some of these. Those are good. I actually had as a number three on my list, which I ended up not taking, is a really famous line from As You Like It. Uh, Mm -hmm. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And Mm -hmm. one man in his time plays many parts. You know, I I, I love that line, but I didn't pick it because I feel like he has several variations of that. Yeah. And in fact, (laughs) that's why I skipped it, because the one that I picked was 
Uh, Macbeth, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. That's kind of similar, you know? Yeah. There's a, a running theme for him about the actors in a play being, you know, emblematic of life or metaphors for real life. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I, I, I urge listeners to try to read one Shakespeare a year. That's what, that's what I do. Like last year it was Richard III, year before Twelfth Night. This year I'm going to do Julius Caesar. I mean, I think it's not too much to ask. Yeah. Or you can do like I did and get the collected works and find yourself stuck in Inverness, Scotland for a few days while it's pouring rain outside. It's the middle of winter and you're staying in a, a bed and breakfast that has a nice cozy fireplace and you just read your way through all the plays. um my last one that i had on here was from antony and cleopatra where cleopatra says my salad days when i was green in judgment cold in blood to say as i said then which is i mean salad days i never knew where that came from uh or why but when he talking about it as your youth uh i knew it meant your youth but i didn't really realize why until it uh, I guess it means sort of uncooked, you know, green, raw, cold, describing the way that, you know, comparing it with your judgment and and your attitude toward the world as your salad days. But then the, the remainder of that goes, uh, also has a phrase that I really like, where it says, uh, it says, but come away, get me ink and paper. He shall have every day a several greeting or I'll unpeople Egypt. such a great shakespeare line Um, okay so my question was actually i know you were doing some research for this and i was going to ask if you made any good discoveries or put anything on your reading list it sounds like julius caesar and merchant of venice are the two that you're going to turn to next yeah i mean i feel like merchant of venice it's interesting my what i've been reading lately is the now scarred last volume which is he has a huge uh, essay about uh, Hitler and his best mm. friend, his only friend, and I'm I, I'm reading the plot against America because I'm about uh, to watch the miniseries, right, and I right. just feel guilty watching something that's based on a book without reading the book. But I, I'm feeling like I have to read Merchant of Venice also. So this year I might read two Shakespeare plays. Mm. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, let's leave things there, Mike. Thanks as always for joining me on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike Palindrome, who will be back with some Borges coming up soon. I know you've been waiting for that one. Set your phasers to subscribe so you don't miss it. What else is on the calendar? Maybe some Ishiguru, Guro, (laughs) some Camus, some Boccaccio. We have a lot of good things in the works, people. William Faulkner and James Baldwin are up ahead to a three-part episode on the two of them. And Catherine Mansfield, a great favorite. And of course, we can't go too long without visiting our old friends Alice Monroe and Anton Chekhov. Is that my version of heaven? Having dinner with those two? Maybe ice cream on the back patio? Maybe so. A hundred years from now, maybe that's where I'll be, hopefully. And maybe you'll round things out there on the porch with us. We could use a fourth. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.